1: The Home and Garden Show, with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey
0: everybody, welcome to Big Blend Radio's Garden Gossip Show with Nancy and Lisa. We are the crazy mother-daughter travel team and publishers of Big Blend Radio and TV Magazine. That's our variety publication that does cover gardening and nature. And also we publish Parks and Travel magazine, obviously covering Parks and Travel, as well as our Love Your Parks tour as we travel across the country, documenting parks and public lands. And uh, one of the things that's really important is our parks and public lands and also what we're doing in our urban spaces, in our gardens. Are we planning the right thing uh, to attract pollinators, butterflies, bees, bats? birds. And uh, we're very excited to have Kim Ironman back on the show. She is the founder of Eco Beneficial. And today she's going to talk about how we can really help pollinators in our gardens. It's basically, listen, like we have dead zones in the ocean from oil spills and all kinds of things, climate change. Um, But we need to look at what we're doing in all the spaces that we have to help pollinators because they really do help our food. And they're pretty. And it's part of the cycle of nature. So she's joining us to talk about that. Uh, Her book is out. Her brand new book. It's beautiful. Everyone, you got to get it. It's so beautiful. And it has really good, hardcore information to get us started to help pollinators. It's called The Pollinator Victory Garden. It's available now through Quarry Books and, of course, Amazon, all your favorite bookstores and if it's not in your local bookstore go ask them to put it in there uh, but you can also go right to kim's website it's ecobeneficial.com so welcome back kim how are you
2: oh well, thank you so much for having me again i'm i'm great i'm past the flu yeah Yay. we all got it the <laughs>
0: flu this year listen i you know and i wonder about that this sounds terrible but when all that stuff's in the air can sickness hurt pollinators like bees i mean do they get the flu because we sneezed on a plant well, i wonder that's a-
2: that's a really interesting question. So, you know, there are some diseases and illnesses that can cross species, but I think by and large the viruses that um, bees and other pollinators get are a little bit different than the ones that we get. Mm. Um, so, yes, I, I don't know if we're sharing germs yet. But. <laughs> but, but, but we are
0: doing things that we are part of the issue of their decline, right? Uh, oh, with,
2: without a doubt, habitat loss, pesticide use, mm-hmm. fragmented landscapes, lack of floral resources. These are all things that, unfortunately, we've kind of done as human beings, but we can undo them and we can improve the situation. And that's why I wrote the book.
0: And Victory Gardens. I love the title Victory Gardens. Mm -hmm. I mean, even now, you know, I I remember our White House used to have a garden to teach kids about uh, fresh vegetables and fruits and, you know, things like that. And Victory Gardens were done, you know, I remember back in World War II, not that I was there then, but I remember stories (laughs) about this, the importance of those gardens and tell us a little bit about the title victory gardens war. sure so i'm familiar I, with world war
2: ii <laughs> yeah i actually in world war one as well it's not yeah, quite as yeah. well known but in both world wars there were um these victory gardens for food defense it was basically a way to get people engaged who couldn't uh, participate in any other way in the war effort and i know in world war Two, at least 20 million american households created uh, victory gardens to be part of the uh, war effort so So um, I thought about this and I thought, well, you know, it's time to actually do the same kind of thing, but this time to help pollinators. And uh, the dirty little secret is if you help pollinators, you're helping your entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have really a wide ranging um, positive impact by following some of these ideas. And
0: when when you talk about pollinators helping the whole ecosystem, like to me, I, you know, talking about dead zones, it's something that's Mm -hmm. kind of been stuck in my brain for the last few years about how we are using our landscaping in our backyards, even, you know, um, in regards to where we're growing our own vegetables and fruits. A lot of us are doing that so that they're organic, but our roadways, our community parks. So when you look at a victory garden for a pollinator, like for me, I think it, it transcends the backyard, right? It can go everywhere absolutely
2: absolutely victory gardens can be absolutely anywhere even if you live in um in an apartment and you have a balcony with some containers mm-hmm. you can create a little mini victory garden um no matter how small the landscape Mm. But um, you're one of the points you're raising is we, we we've got to really start thinking pesticide free. If we're going to support pollinators, yeah. it's about being pesticide free, and that is so critically important. Uh, my book, in fact, is dedicated to Rachel Carson, mm. who wrote Silent Spring.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and um rocks (laughs) yeah uh and synthetic pesticides have gotten us into a lot of trouble but unfortunately some folks don't realize that you know organic pesticides are not benign and some of our organic preparations can be um, lethal or sublethal to um, delicate creatures like bees and other pollinators so really changing our perspective of our landscapes giving up perfection and also thinking about what nature does to keep things in balance. Nature, uh, a healthy natural ecosystem, and we can create those, uh, has an abundance of small flowered native plants that support beneficial insects. Our garden allies that prey uh, on uh, insects that are pest insects. So it's really about planting to attract these beneficials to keep our pests in check. And, um, if we take care of our plants and keep them healthy, uh, we will not have as many problems and diseases, et cetera. Would that also help the soil? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And that's that's a really good point. Um, getting to know your soil sounds kind of silly, <laughs> but that's important. So when I work with clients, I always suggest that they first do a soil test test to their mm-hmm. uh, local extension and um, really gets a handle on what the pH is and what the soil texture is. And if there are any macro and nutrients that are really out of balance, because mm-hmm. only then can we figure out what's the right, you know, what's the right combination of plants to plant for our particular situation.
3: Hmm. Especially, I think, if you move into, like, a new home and they just constructed it, there's a whole lot of stuff left there Mm
2: -hmm. that you
3: might not know that's in your soil.
2: And they t- uh, tend to strip off topsoil when mm-hmm. new housing goes in, which is ter- you know really terrible, so mm-hmm. what we can do is start thinking about how we how we build up that soil biology to support plants which in turn support wildlife, including pollinators, and that 's about getting life back into the soil. It said that a a, a teaspoon of healthy soil has more microorganisms than there are uh, people on the planet i mean wow. it, Filled with life. So, getting mm. compost, compost teas, these kinds of things to increase soil biology and the minimizing disturbance as much as possible are really keys.
0: Mm. Mm. And, and native plants, there's something, you know, as we travel and go through different parks, seeing the, you, we start to see native plants. When, what's interesting about being park travelers, um, you know, last time we chatted with you, we were, we were based in Tucson, Arizona, and right outside Saguaro National Park. We travel, as human beings, we travel to parks to see things like Joshua trees, saguaros, uh, we, to see you know, the giant coastal redwoods and, and Sequoia National, uh, National Park. You go there for Sequoia trees. You go to these places to see these unique plants. But I'm like, part of our makeup is that we should be coexisting with them in our neighborhoods, in our gardens, because right. that's, our in, that's integrity to the land and who we are in our each of our areas. So I find that interesting, but I also see that as we've traveled, um, that we're going to these parks to see things like saguaros, but as before you get on a hiking trail, you need to scrape your boots off, even your backpacks and things, uh, I want to talk about bats with you, Big Teton, because that's a huge mm-hmm. deal. But it, we're scraping our shoes off because park travelers were carrying seeds from another yeah. park in. Yep. So we're seeing the native plants, and you cover this in your book. You talk about kudzu. Is it kudzu? Because we saw that in kudzu, Louisiana. Yeah. Kud, kudzu. That awful yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, I thought it was pretty until I read your book.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's it's uh, a so for our listeners, you know, kudzu is one of um, our most uh, difficult invasive vines that just completely. Swallows up ecosystems and eliminates the native plants that would be there We have such a problem with invasive plants in this country now on every state in the uh, in the nation Um, And we need to to be aware of that don't plant them if you have them remove them and replace with natives You know, it's it's all about evolution. You know, Um, we can't get away from that. Uh, Wildlife has uh, evolved with the native plants that support them. And sometimes they're very intricate connections. You know, I think most people know of the monarch uh, butterfly, caterpillar, and milkweeds. Uh, mm. It's obligate host plant. But there's so many examples like that that we are really not informed about. And uh, Mother Nature kind of really does know best. So if we can support her, um, you know, we're going to support pollinators too. And when,
0: the one thing I've seen too is you're changing your your landscape. You don't have to like suddenly rip out your entire yard, right? You can yeah, I think step that, by step, right? Mm-hmm.
2: It can be very intimidating mm-hmm. to to um, face the task of just com- making complete change. I, I, I caution clients not to do that, to take small steps and c- create um, projects in priority order and start small, get a success in your belt, have a fantastic pollinator garden. It's maybe a pollinator island in the middle of that green desert, your lawn, and then mm-hmm. keep going with it. Mm-hmm. But um, if, you, if you make it more... Um, a scalable so you can accomplish it you're gonna be in much better shape than try to take on too much at once mm.
0: You have some great tips, especially at the appendix part of your book, talking about, you know, here's your tips, here's what you do, but you talk about planting in succession too, so you have to know your seasons, which we need to know for our food as well, right?
2: (laughs) Sure. Well, you know, there there are so many principles to um, pollinator gardening and gardening with native plants, and one of them, as you mentioned, is planting for for that succession of bloom. In a lot of parts of the country, that's going to be from spring through fall, but in warmer parts of the country, Mm -hmm. you know, it may be year-round. So we really want to have overlapping times when multiple native plants are in bloom. So we constantly have um, a source of forage for pollinators. But here's the catch. We also have to plant diversely. Because different pollinators are attracted to different types of flowers and the characteristics that they've evolved with are called pollination syndrome. So mm. what's going to be accessible and appealing to a bat, for example, is, is going to be, it's going to be very different for, you know, say a, a native bumblebee. Mm -hmm. So having a diverse array of flowering plants of different flower structure, colors, sizes, shapes, et cetera, and even fragrance, Um, while a bee can smell a, a fresh scent, a bird has no sense of smell. So it won't be a fragrant plant isn't really useful to a bird, will be to a moth. Mm. so we need to achieve what I call floral balance this balance between plant diversity and plant sufficiency enough of a given plant where pollinators can find it and then have a succession of diverse bloom throughout the entire growing season you know and that growing season will depend on where you live so this is like farm to
0: table in your backyard there you go it's like Mm -hmm. running a restaurant like you want to yeah so and so doesn't know this is a veg- vegetarian over here no this one th- that one is an omnivore <laughs> <So we> can, <laughs> right, right. And, and carnivores right so you also want to have that because you can even absolutely have, aren't there also you know i remember when we lived up in joshua tree area and oh tucson too the day torah at night would shine with the moon oh, and so cool you know different plants have things happen at night because that's right. important that we talk about it because that also i bats i would
2: The mm-hmm. suwaros at night. Right. <laughs> And um, you know so we have um, a limited number of pollinating bats in North America and they're mostly centered in the in the southwest um, parts of very Southern California Uh, and um, they're really important to plants like agave and saguaro cactus Mm. they're absolutely critical pollinators but they're going to be active at night and they're going to be looking for um, very fragrant uh, flowers that uh, have a fragrance at night and are just loaded with dilute nectar so that's um, you know that's something to think about if in if you're in those that part of the country, um, bat pollinations is is really key. And and as you've alluded to, bats are really suffering um, po- population crashes mm-hmm. uh, in North America. Unfortunately, a lot of it's due to uh, human activity.
0: Mm-hmm. And that we've noticed that in parks because some caves you can't go into uh, mm-hmm. because they have like a white white something something or other white some? nose syndrome. Yeah, oh, yeah, the white mm-hmm. nose. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. The the spelunkers, the ones who go caving, um, unfortunately often have tracked you know, things in these caves. Mm. So really, you know, trying to understand the creatures that we want to support a little bit more, understanding what their needs are and um, what's risky for them is is key. Mm. So habitat is a subject matter that most people don't talk about when they talk about gardening. Mm. So we don't have to just give um, pollinators floral resources and host plants in the case of moth and butterfly caterpillars, but we have to provide them with habitat. Mm. And mm. Um, as an example, our our native bees, so we have tons and tons and tons of native bees, um, about 3,600 uh, named species of native bees in no North way. America. Yeah. yeah. And about another 400 that are unnamed. So maybe 4,000 species of native bees uh, throughout uh, North America. And the vast majority of these uh, native bees are solitary. So they need individual homes. And the majority of those bees are going to be nesting in the ground. So thinking about reserving an area of our landscapes in a sunny area where the soil is not too compacted and not too wet an area that's really bee habitat territory is going to be an important part of this and then for the other um, percent of bees uh, that are native the other 30% so 70% nest in the ground about 30% nest in um, cavities old mouse holes tree cavities pithy plant stems um, even in uh, beetle burrows of dead trees, so we need to start thinking about not just flowers but habitat too.
0: Mm. And and that's interesting because when they like we we've learned over the years don't rake up your leaves because that becomes a habitat. Yep. And, and fall and winter you cover that in your it. book too, which is so important. But you everybody needs a home and everybody has a different. And when you look at you know when we go out house hunting or apartment hunting or condo hunting whatever it is, you're Looking for a place that suits you, so I'm I'm just trying to put it into the human terms you know, for everyone. Sure, absolutely. And, and I think what's interesting about this too is like again, I'm going to go like Tucson. You know, people have saguaro cactus in their neighborhoods. We're lucky that way. Um, not that we're there anymore. But yeah. <laughs> it was awesome what they did because it's also a dark sky community, which is really great. Oh, that's for great, bats, for, right? Yeah, yeah, and
2: birds Yeah, so you had birds, javelinas
0: yeah. running in the neighborhoods, and all oh, you know, it's it it they did a good they. Are still doing and doing even more um, in that regard. But when you have that habitat in your backyard and you can actually create all these different habitats, m- things that we've learned in parks are the parks, um, how they do have these diverse habitats, you start to see all kinds of species. Pinnacles National Park in um, central california has over 400 bee species which Mm -hmm, is insane mm -hmm. but they also had to go through a stage of there was wild boar there was all these things that weren't supposed to be there and they had to do a lot of cleaning out of the land to make things happen so it's interesting going places like that to see it but then bringing it home and going okay not don't take anything out of a park i mean bring it on home and that have that visual of what could be in your own backyard Right, right and I think for kids, especially, to be part of that process to understand by having it in your backyard, like you said, even if it's when we're in an apartment, we have, you know, natives on our back, native plants on our backyard, and we watch verdans with their babies come for water. You know, mm-hmm, it, it was mm-hmm. amazing, little verdant birds. So you can do this in most places, or you can even go rent a plot, you know. Uh, absolutely. You can Community gardening, too. But when you watch that, then you have this understanding and you're part of the process. You're part of the ecosystem then. Uh
2: anyone who has a landscape has an ecosystem and often it's pretty damaged. So a really good idea is to um, go to uh, local natural areas that are near you and see what's there and what it looks like. And the plants that are growing, ignore the invasive plants. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) um, Get a sense of what Mm -hmm. should be there and reflect that in your planting, because those are the plants that are going to support pollinators and other wildlife. Mm And you know, I, I, landscape that's filled with life is so much more interesting than a landscape that is denuded of wildlife and Mm. you know where i am i'm in uh, new york north of um, manhattan and i have neighbors that that don't even know what an opossum is oh and freak out when they see an opossum and i think oh my gosh that's so cool cool. that that an opossum can live 16 miles north of grand central station in my backyard So wow. we need, we need to start rejoicing um, and um, you know celebrating nature instead of being terrified of it.
0: I'm seeing more and more parks um, and communities. A lot as we travel, we see communities like go. Okay, we got to look at our parks, and that they're starting to understand because of scientific research and data, and even communities going. We have gang problems. We have anger issues. Our community is unhealthy. Like if you have too many homes with too many angry issues, then it's going to become an angry community. And they're starting to put more green spaces in, more trails, Mm -hmm. park benches. I've, I've done a lot of research on this. I've kind of geeked out over the last few months over this. And it's kind of interesting to see communities step up. Um, planners stepping up. Some don't, some do. And, you know, I I encourage everyone to do it because they're starting to see that people change into a, we become better humans when we connect with nature.
2: Have you seen that? Absolutely. I mean, everyone deserves a connection with nature and, and this, this movement of environmental justice is really profound. You know, um, I see, so I live near New York city. I see the high line, which is the, um, the raised uh, railway that has been now turned into, you know, essentially a huge garden. I don't know if you've had a chance to visit it. It's, but they get, literally millions of visitors a year it people have a desperate need to connect with nature and too few opportunities to do that so you know even if you're running a business and you have a little bit of a landscape in front of your business get a pollinator garden and get kids engaged you can use some native edible plants too to show folks you know that yes we really are connected (laughs) here and um you know really try to make an impression on children when they're young so they care about nature when they get older
0: we recently interviewed a a family therapist it was dr amy stark i remember her name i've got to remember (laughs) we do so many interviews but she came on our show she had written a children's book about monarchs and she has a little garden she's in i think is it san diego or orange county nancy Is southern california Mm -hmm. and she has a tiny 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 garden where her practice is but because she planted native plants Mm -hmm. all the butterflies are there hummingbirds you name it and what happens is that the patients come in the families with the kids and everybody's glued to the garden yeah, and suddenly communication is happening. So our therapist office is starting to happen garden style because of the monarchs. That's
2: and because, fantastic.
0: Isn't that cool? Yeah. So that's kind of where I want those everyone to understand that that connection with nature is so positive. Uh, but monarchs, this is a thing too. We're seeing like I see stats that oh some are that they're doing better. They're not where are we in statistics in regards to the monarch butterfly do you think so
2: there are two uh, essential populations of monarchs in north america one is um, uh, resident on the west coast uh, primarily you know california and um, and then of course down into mexico but Mm -hmm. um, that western population is uh, crashing and is yeah. in really deep deep trouble it 's a smaller population uh, the population that overwinters in the mountains of mexico that's that 's the population that comes across the country you know up here where I am in, in the uh, northeastern part of the United States and um, they're they're doing better, but it 's really all about um, habitat and mm-hmm. you know absence of pesticides and floral resources. So a lot of people have been planting milkweed. Uh, there are many different species of milkweeds in the United States. Pick, pick ones that are you know, appropriate to your particular region. Um, but um, milkweed's not enough if there are pesticides around. So we gotta, you know, again, get off the pesticide kick but these monarchs that migrate to Mexico um, they need that habitat and you know we've just had um, a couple um, incidents in Mexico one person was murdered who was yeah a conservationist. oh my god mm-hmm. I know so yeah. what the heck is going on there there's something yeah. really chemical dis- companies yeah. yeah really really disturbing so we need to start protecting these people and protecting those spaces and you know, make make it clear that this, this can't ever be tolerated and prosecute those crimes. Um, but this is one thing
0: we can do, take into our own hands. I think when we look at what's going on in, uh, around the world and in our country, we can all argue and draw lines in the sand, which doesn't really help anything or we can take action. My favorite quote is from Joan Baez, and action is the antidote to despair. And your book gives us the simple tools of action that we can take care of. You care about butterflies, well, you better care about butterflies because it's going to result in you having food, right? And they're beautiful to look at, but it's our food. It's our food system. Pollinators are our food system. And and nature, Nancy isn't this true Nancy you always talk about this it's, mm-hmm. it's like we don't have a life without nature right
3: <laughs> no absolutely not and the more like you know when I see housing developments go in and then years of them trying to fill the homes you wonder well okay what do we just do you know um, we mm-hmm. destroy a bunch of places where nature can thrive
1: mm-hmm. putting
3: out homes but the homes are so costly that they have trouble selling or renting them out.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So it's like a, we have to start really getting realistic in our thinking.
2: Mm. Absolutely. We're, we're part of nature. It's, mm-hmm. it's not an incidental thing for us. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, the sooner that we understand that, the better off we're going to be is, you know, pollinators, animal pollinators. So we're talking about mm-hmm. bees and butterflies mm-hmm. and bats and moths mm-hmm. and um, even wasps and beetles are the largest group of pollinating um, animals on earth. There are many mm-hmm. different pollinators and they... Uh, actually pollinate about 80% of all flowering plants on Earth. So it's not just... You know uh, our food, cute. but it's all yeah. these other flowering plants that exist. Now it said that about um, one third of our um, food crops are pollinated by animal pollinators, mm. which is uh, which is a lot. But That's the UN, lot. yeah, the UN has shown that actually the the majority of um, of food crops benefit from animal pollination, even if they don't require it. So the um, result is uh, increased yields and better quality of food crop. Mm. So pollinators are really important and um, we can do something about it. That's, that's the great news. Anybody can. And
0: native plants are pretty, um, honestly, I, I want to touch on this about going and deciding, okay, we're going to start the garden, right. And start small. Like you're saying, Mm -hmm. um, look at the seasons, understand your soil, understand your climate. Now, a lot of times people. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime.
1: Can I be real for a second?
4: Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite
1: athletes only, right?
4: Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial.
0: we will go to the big box stores and right. think these are the right plants to bring home we've done it nancy and i've done it mm-hmm. oh yeah we've, we've even done interviews with the other side and going oopsie mm-hmm. so we've we've <laughs> learned in a really hard way <laughs> so i want to talk about the importance of supporting Native plant nurseries.
2: Absolutely.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like bookstores, okay? Yeah, thank you. Um,
2: You know, if we don't support the people that are dedicating our lives to growing native plants and supporting our ecosystems, you know, if we don't support them, they vanish. Mm -hmm. Um, It's Mm -hmm. really hard work and the margins are really thin. So, you know, when you go to a farmer's market and you decide, you know, I really want to eat organic and I really want to support, you know, heirloom uh, varieties, you're willing Mm -hmm. to pay more. Right. Mm -hmm. So be willing to go to native nurseries that are doing it right, that are growing pesticide free, that are growing the native plants that belong in the region, that are often growing from seed, which is the hardest possible thing to do with um, woody plants, trees and shrubs um, Mm. and vines. Really tough work, Um, but they're promoting genetic diversity that way be prepared to pay more for those plants because they cost more to grow and support that effort or else we lose those resources. Mm. So um, the big box stores don't have um, the greatest practices in terms of how they uh, deal with their suppliers. And um, you really don't know um, what you're getting when you go to a big box store, how it's been grown, where it's been grown. Did it come from across the country or is it local, mm. is the pot that you're picking up filled with a, a, a pester disease that is now being introduced into the region where you are. Um, so buying local from uh, local nurseries is best practice in, in my view.
0: Mm. And, and also when you plant native plants, I mean, because I remember this whole thing of native plants aren't, there was the ornamental craze that I think mm-hmm. ruined a lot of things on top of big ag, right? Um so the ornamental stuff, it yes, it's pretty, you know, but we could be planting the natives. And honestly, when you have it, when you're it, like, we, I'm sorry, but when you sleep in a park and you're surrounded by n- mother nature as intended, that's integrity and, and left to be who she is, you have all the native plants around you and all the native birds come out and all mm-hmm. the beautiful creatures that they this is their home there is something magical about it and you feel more like you belong when you do that.
2: Right. And you know, different, different people have a different aesthetic, right? So I like a very uh, naturalistic aesthetic. Some people like a more formal aesthetic and and you can Mm -hmm. plant natives in both fashions. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And there's so many gorgeous native plants, but I, I suggest to listeners that you find the beauty, not only in how a plant looks, but what a plant does. And then you'll never forget that. So, you know, a a beautiful goldenrod is never more beautiful than when it's got a bee or a a butterfly or some other pollinator pollinating on it. So we need Mm. to find that beauty. Um, And uh, again, we can do it in a more formal fashion in our landscapes or a looser fashion, depending on your aesthetic. And, you know, sometimes homeowners associations can be a little bit problematic, too. Now, what about yeah? Then that's you can be the
0: person that educates them. Everybody Mm -hmm. in their homeowners association get on the board and educate. Yeah, we we have political systems for that reason. When when when, um when you look at spring and especially in your area, Mm -hmm. um I know that there's like you you get like all of a sudden the snow is melting off and everything. Um, is there anything we should know about that? Because I know you know it's springtime. Um things start to come out and then you start wondering about all these wiggly things and, Oh, (laughs) should we trim the pond back? You know, that kind of thing.
2: Mm -hmm well uh, early spring in many parts of the country is a a crucial time because uh, pollinators a lot of pollinators are starting to wake up and not every pollinator says oh it's March 1st I'm up and about you know they they come out gradually and they have different lifespans but um, in the spring you know there are for example native bumblebees that are some of our earliest ones to emerge and the mated queens if they've survived the winter uh, if you've provided enough fall blooming native plants for them to go into winter well-fed <laughs> you've given them habitat mm-hmm. well those overwintering queens they're gonna be hungry they're gonna be looking for uh, forage resources nectar and pollen and um, you know they may have already mated um, in fall and they're looking for a, a place to raise their brood so thinking about some of these early flowering plants and, and my neck of the woods it's gonna include things like Red maples and pussy willows, depends on the part of the country that you're in, but having a lot of those early bloomers is really important. Um, and we don't often think of trees and shrubs as being pollinator plants, but at least uh in the northeast they're some of our earliest emerging pollinator plants and then we have spring ephemerals which you guys have probably seen i'm sure you've been to the smoky mountains which is just not yet
0: mm -hmm. we're getting Uh, not yet oh you got to the smokies
2: it's on our list this year it's coming perfect um so that's just a magical place to go to see spring ephemerals um native plants that emerge in woodland settings before the trees leaf out and are some of the earliest resources for pollinators early pollinators in the spring Um, things like trout lilies and Dutchman's breeches and all these wonderful plants Um, so get to know the plants of your area your region and one great way to do that is to join your local native plant organization Uh, that's just uh, an inexpensive way to learn a lot a lot of these organizations uh, throughout the country have websites just loaded with information about native plants where to buy them uh, tips, etc., and then um, there's some wonderful resources like the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower mm. Center's database on native plants. You can do a search by your state, and take a look and see what's uh, native. Um, you can do, um, you know, a uh, filtered search if you're looking for, say, spring bloomers, versus fall, or trees versus perennials, etc. And um, and there are other really good resources for plant lists. Um, I've provided some regional lists on my website. Yeah. Couldn't get everything in the book, so there's a lot more information on my website. But um, mm-hmm. it's it's a pleasure learning this stuff. You know, it's, it's fun. Yeah, and it's think, really
3: fun. I think one of the the biggest problems is when you go into a nursery, whether it be a small one or a you know box store one, mm-hmm. there the native plant section seems to be way far away in the little corner at the back with plants that look like they're barely surviving. <laughs> and, and you know what I'm talking about, right? I've seen and those then, nurseries. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then, then when they do bloom, the flowers are so tiny.
0: Yeah. It depends on where you are. Yeah. That,
3: that um, they, they're just not as impressive as you know, let's go look at the the, you know, camellias and, and well,
0: even so, if they don't yeah. belong where you're that, that, That's why I like your I'm book sure. so much so, is that you prove that native plants so I are think that's freaking that beautiful. <laughs> but
3: that, but that's the one thing that I've noticed is that it's not native plants first. They're in the back corner and they yeah. don't look that healthy and they look really tiny, um in in the blooming that mm-hmm. like you want the big flower or the tiny flower there's that and then there's also the convenience of the lawn which I think it's funny because everybody goes, oh let's you know get rid of all this put in a lawn and then they don't want to mow the lawn
0: well, and they
3: get really yeah. upset about having to mow the lawn all the time oh well if you didn't have, and lawn, it you wouldn't have and to water mow it, it it's yeah, amazing, and then, uh, yeah and the other thing is the okay you know what's good for the goose is good for the gander. let me just spray everything and kill everything mm-hmm. all at one time without thinking i mean sure. the idea of spraying poison which is exactly what we are doing mm-hmm. we're yep. spraying, it it's poisonous for us and for all kinds of creatures yep. Yep. and we just
2: go oh and and what gets me is you can actually buy poison and spray it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's actually easier for a homeowner yeah. to buy pesticides than it is for a licensed um, a pesticide applicator. But let me wow. make a comment about native nurseries. So mm. I suggest you do a couple things. One is find your local native nurseries that focus on natives so that's number one because they're really they know what they're doing number two go to the nurseries that maybe don't do such a great job and encourage them to get more natives and grow them better Hmm. and you can be a bit Clever with this, um, if you are, if you belong to an, or an environmental organization, for example, like I belong to the Native uh, Plant Center here in New York. Mm-hmm. Well, we've partnered um, with a local nursery. I think we're into our tenth year now, where every mm-hmm. fall we do a big native plant festival, and we bring in all the volunteers, and they bring in native plants that they never bought before,
1: cool. and we
2: and we increase their sales. We double their sales that weekend, and they love us. Mm-hmm so being creative um there are a lot of uh local uh organizations that do native plant sales in the spring and the fall in various parts of the country uh, support those audubon societies are starting to do a lot of this mm-hmm. but you got to get the word out and if a nursery doesn't have natives ask them why not yeah exactly <laughs> and, yeah. and
0: botanical gardens too a lot of them like san diego botanical garden been there they, they have their ornamentals and things because a lot grows in that environment but they also have this huge section dedicated to xeriscape uh, landscaping, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, xeriscape, you know, you know, conserving water sure. and California native plants. That's their big yep. thing. And so that's important. I mean, it's like I sometimes look at botanical gardens and zoos in a weird way.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what I
0: mean? It's like, you know, I I, I think they're very, very important to understanding and it's cool when you can see plants from another country but i really think that there's that side that um i've seen botanical gardens slowly like we were just in santa fe new mexico and their main purpose is to teach locals that number one you can have plants in the desert and Mm -hmm. you can do it in the right way and with natives and it was amazing what we saw i mean it was absolutely beautiful the native plants are beautiful and isn't it like once we plant them and I wanna go wait, I wanna go back to Nancy talking about, you know, the ugly native plant in the corner. <laughs> because some native plants, if they're in their dormancy stage, like an ocotillo in the desert here in the southwest, where we are right now. An ocotillo, when it's not in its green and blooming stage, mm-hmm. looks like a stick and you're gonna think it's dead, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And so when you go to buy one, you'll go, oh, it's dead. This is a bad nursery. So that's another factor is native plants have different cycles. And you talk about that extensively in your book about cycles. So that's something to understand, too, that it's not always blooming and pretty when you go, to the nursery because it's just the wrong season for that.
2: Yeah, um, we've had such a focus on annuals. Things have to look great for month after yeah. month after month, and a lot of those plants are so overbred that they really um, provide almost nothing for nature. So I'm very suspicious of uh, of plants that have been bred to like be constant bloomers. And our our eye obviously is is often attracted to the big showy things, but let's look a little deeper. Like hydrangeas are very big in this part of the country, mm-hmm. not so much who are where you guys are from, um, although lots of people who live in desert areas or are try to grow hydrangeas, which is nothing short of insane. <laughs> but um, the big uh, pom-pom hydrangeas that have the big showy flowers have very, very few fertile flowers. Those showy flowers are infertile. So I like to suggest to clients, listen, if you, if you like that, we'll get you one of those. But let's get some of our native hydrangeas in that are less showy but have many more fertile flowers with nectar and pollen for insects. So it's perspective, it's context, it's understanding the function that this plant is supposed to actually provide, Mm. not just how it looks to your eyeball that moment. Mm. It's cool. You
0: talk about hydrangeas. I have to say one of the coolest experiences we had on the tour in 2019 was Florissant Fossil Beds National Monument in Colorado. So everybody flocks in Colorado Springs area to the Garden of the Gods. And they literally do to the point that you want to run. There's so many people, but if you go east—I mean, excuse me, west a little bit. That's why we go in circles. Um, this Florissant fossil beds is this crazy park of petr they have petrified redwoods in Colorado, and it's mm-hmm. amazing. You—you mm-hmm. you can't even believe it in, until you're there, but then you go and see the fossil collection the visitor center, and they have fossilized hydrangeas
2: oh that's so cool (laughs) how crazy is that because i never
0: thought of hydrangeas even being native
2: Mm. yeah (laughs) i was like
0: holy cow hydrangeas were there millions of years ago sure
2: sure before seriously yeah Yeah.
0: think about that i mean millions was it two million years ago they were here
2: (laughs) well Dude. You know, there there are so many plants to choose from no matter where you live that are native and that are beautiful. Mm. That really, you know, thinking that ornament quote unquote ornamental, I don't even know what that really means. What does that mean? To me All plants have an ornamental aspect, but we've gotten ourselves into trouble by focusing on non-natives and you can see that and you do, I'm sure across the country with the proliferation of invasive plants that come from other continents, Mm. uh, mostly Asia, unfortunately, Mm -mm. some from Europe that have overtaken our native habitats and are, you know, where I live, uh, you go up a parkway and you just see invasive vines smothering the entire woodland. I mean, they're killing everything. So we we have to pay a little bit more attention to what we plan and to anticipate What it might do if it's too aggressive a lot of the plants that we brought into the country in the 18 late 1800s and early 1900s for ornamental gardens are now some of our biggest garden thugs Mm. and uh, they do an invasive plant is defined to either uh, do harm to the environment or to human health or to agriculture and um, we see this constantly so take a look at your state's invasive species list and make sure one, you don't buy any of these plants if they're still found for sale, and unfortunately sometimes they are, um, and look at the states near you and don't use the plants that are invasive on those lists either. And if you have some of these invasive plants, start removing them and replacing them with, inv- with Excuse me, with native alternatives that support our ecosystems. Mm. Um, yeah that's super important and and the lawn i can't overstate how important it is to start replacing some lawn with um more wildlife supportive native plantings it's so critical as a development just keeps going 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 our own home landscapes have never been more important at any time and um you know i i see with clients we plant and boom the birds the butterflies the bees the, the mammals appear and um we really can make a difference I, I we really can
0: and and lastly on the native plant part where when you purchase them you know they will take time to get familiar with your surroundings it's going to take a a couple years, right? Depending on the plant. Not and
2: necessarily. The... You know, it's it depends on the plant species. So, mm-hmm. um, with perennial plants, um, I often use plant plugs—very small, deep-rooted plants. Kind of looks like if you're going to the garden center to get a tray of annuals. Kind of looks like that, with but deep, with deeper roots, and it's a very in, uh, inexpensive way to buy plants. And I have been stunned at, at um, planting plugs in, say, May and then by fall they're full size in some cases so it really depends on the species that you that you um are planting mm. but uh it's it's extraordinary and it's all about planting the right plant in the right place too right so mm-hmm. if you know your soil conditions you understand your region and you plant the right plant in the right place you don't put sun lovers in shade you don't put plants that like uh, fast drainage and droughty soil in a wet condition by following those Basic principles of gardening uh, put the right plant in the right place you 're going to have much better success and don 't be afraid with trees and shrubs to buy small yeah grown containerized plants. Typically, grow much, much faster than a large specimen that's been bald and burlapped, where you know 80% or more of the root system has been dug up. So, don't be afraid of small and have a little patience. I know we're not very patient society, but right, that's the problem. (laughs) Yeah, well, gardening will create patience. Yeah, it's
0: so cool to go out. That's a Nancy and I, right, Nancy? The one thing Mm -hmm. we we miss. You know, it's like when we get to a place like right now, we're in Yuma for a little bit, and we'll go walk the wetlands and see the gardens of the hotel that we're at, the Coronado Hotel. People stay here just because there's a garden. <laughs> you can just sit yeah. with the birds. And yeah. it's amazing how many species, how many species do you think are in the palm trees, Nancy?
3: Oh, gosh, there's so many. Like, we, There are birds that go up into the palm trees that you wouldn't think even fit.
0: I know. And they're all living next to each other in their yeah. own little colonies. And it's like, We sit there, we have our wine time with the birds under the ponds, and we're like, (laughs) well, you have to have wine time. And, you know, and we're like, oh my gosh, check this out. And here it is, and it's all native plants, you know. And it's like, okay, this is cool. So our time is like going, we go walk the wetlands here, which is all a big restoration project. It took 49 agencies coming together to restore the wetlands of the lower Colorado River. Wow. And they're really doing it, taking the invasives out. We've been watching this go for 20, for 20 years. We've, we've been watching this process. <laughs> Seriously. From one hummingbird bush, which was like a little, um, what do you call it? The, oh, oh humming it the cape hummingbird you know the little red da, ah, the little tubular one it's orange tubular hummingbird style plant mm-hmm. anyway yep. hum-
2: from hum- hummingbirds love red tubular flowers yeah yeah
0: there's one native plant they have a wetlands uh, a garden here um it's all for hummingbirds and butterflies it's all native plants and we went and did a whole walk around with the guys who maintain it And they say that people come to the garden and they go, well, where's the flowers? And they're standing right next to it, like the the fairy duster flowers and things like that. Mm -hmm. People don't realize that that's part of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But it's really magical because we go every day and something new happens. And it's the same as having your own garden in the backyard. When you plant something, you will see something happen every day. Everything
2: changes. And plant diversity translates into wildlife diversity so the more you know diverse array of native plants that you have the more creatures that are coming and um you know i i encourage folks to start um making a list uh, of what they're seeing. And if you can get a picture of it, use iNaturalist or another app mm. like that to identify it and get your kids engaged. Kids want to be on these, you know, on the phones constantly. Well, get them iNaturalist so they can start identifying what they're seeing. It's a wonderful resource. Citizen Science. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, you know, really uh, that that whole thing about diversity, that is our greatest tool in the face of climate change. And um, we depend on the ecosystem services that a healthy environment provides. And if we Mm. don't improve environmental health, uh, we miss that opportunity at our own risk. And be nice to the worms and the snakes. They're part of it. Spiders (laughs) too. They're all
0: part of it. They're all part of it. Thank you so much, Kim, beautiful, well, thank you. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. Nancy's holding onto it. We're like, no, mm-hmm. I, I l- love it. I know. <laughs> I know. I think it's going to be part of like our education as we travel.
2: <laughs> well, thank you that. so much for um, that.
0: No, really it is. It's beautiful, but it, it really gives you tips on getting started and you can start small. It's not like an overnight, like, Oh my God, I have to redo my entire garden. You can get started, start small, but, and get your kids involved in schools um we've seen things of people making these changes across the country and it's it is so cool to see kids light up with things you know when they see a bug or a caterpillar eating they're like oh look at that that's so mm-hmm. cool and you know things are happening and it can happen in right in your backyard so check it out everyone go to ecobeneficial.com again the book is by kim ironman it's e-i-e-r-m-a-n And um, I'm just trying to prove I can spell Kim.
2: (laughs) You're exactly correct.
0: uh, Okay, good. And everybody, the the book name is... uh The Pollinator Victory Garden. Win the war on pollinator decline with ecological gardening. Again, ecobeneficial.com. Go to Amazon, all those places, and go to your local bookstore and say, I want the book. And go (laughs) to your botanical garden because they have gift shops too and say, I want the book. Just saying. (laughs) All of those places, even nurseries, right? Okay, they have books. So just say, I want the book. So go there. And we also want to give a shout out and thank you to our sponsor for today's show, which is fine art nature photographer Margot Carrera. Uh, She has, uh, go check out her work. She loves nature and everything that we're talking about today it is carrerafineartgallery.com beautiful beautiful work and gifts i mean scarves with sunflowers and all kinds of good things Uh, she talks about wrapping yourself in nature she understands the healing powers of nature and that's what she's all about and she has assigned us to a project to document gardens across america as we travel not just parks and we've even learned that cemeteries are gardens It's amazing. Uh, Rest stop areas, some places, I want to give a shout out to Missouri and Kansas for having pollinator gardens in their rest areas. So I think it's important that we use every space in the right way and give nature its land back. (laughs) I'm just going to say it that way. So thank you, Marga, for sending us on the assignment. It's fun. We have uh, so many more places to put on the map. It's pretty crazy. It's almost like Covering all the parks that we've been to. So check it out on nationalparktraveling.com if you want to follow our map or just go to loveyourparkstour.com. Of course, keep up with us at bigblendradio.com. And Kim, we love to play music for our guests and, and for our listeners that go with the topic. And today's song is Pink Fairy Duster and Hummingbird <laughs> Moths.
2: Fabulous. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, you so much.
0: Here it is, everyone. It's from Michael and Spider and it's off of their album, Perfume of Creosote. Thanks so much, Kim. Thank you.